Howdy folks, this is Miss Sinclair for Miss Sinclair's History. Today, we are continuing in period three of our AP US History curriculum. We are talking about the Constitutional Convention today. Let's get into it. So let's think back to the Articles of Confederation. Now, if you remember, this was our first form of government and I want you to try and reflect on its strengths and weaknesses. Remember, I include these review questions as a self-assessment tool for you. They're intended to, to activate your prior knowledge and see how much you are remembering. If you learned this yesterday in class or two days ago or even last week, and today, you cannot remember any of the strengths or weaknesses of the articles. That probably should tell you that you need to study more. Perhaps you need to read your textbook or use a review book or even just review your notes, um, make flashcards, something. You need to be able to remember the information for your test at the end of the unit. And then, of course, the AP exam in May. Okay. So I'll review a little bit about the articles once we get started. Today, we are looking at topic 3.8, the Constitutional Convention. We'll talk about the Constitution itself in our next podcast or video. Remember, you can watch this on YouTube with the PowerPoint slides and images, if you, especially if you want to take notes. This might be a helpful resource for you, or you can just listen to it as a podcast, get the information. Our objective today, you will be able to explain the differing ideological positions on the structure and the function of the federal government. So if you remember, our government in place at this time is based on the Articles of Confederation. And the Articles of Confederation are really successful in doing two things. One, it keeps our country together for 10 years. And two, it creates a plan through which new territory will be incorporated, right? So think the Northwest Ordinance. But the articles have a lot of weaknesses too. Because there's no executive, there's no judiciary, the federal government is essentially powerless to the state governments. And now if you're Virginia or you're Massachusetts, you might think like, hell yeah, like I don't want any big wigs in Washington. They're not meeting in Washington yet, but I don't want any big wigs telling me what to do. I, I like having the freedom, right? What would a, someone in Massachusetts know about governing in Virginia, right? That kind of mentality. But it means that our economy is failing, inflation's out of control, states are viewing each other as competitors instead of allies, um, foreign states are cutting off um, our access to markets. They're not sending ambassadors. So it's not good. If you remember, there was an attempt to adapt the Articles of Confederation, the Albany um, Convention. Was it Albany? Hertford? Um, and it was a failure. So we're trying again. Clearly, the Constitution or the Articles of Confederation aren't working. So we meet in 1787 in Philadelphia. We have 55 delegates representing 12 states. Rhode Island didn't bother to show up. They didn't trust the other 12 states 
Um, and so they said, like, we think you're good. You're saying hinky. So we're not even going to participate. And, you know, they're not wrong. What's going to happen is we're going to have a full new form of government. Now, if Rhode Island had been there, that might have been helpful. So this time, instead of John Hancock, we place George Washington as the president of this convention, right? So he's the guy presiding over it. Um, so we refer to him in the, this context as Mr. President. And look at the year, we're a decade later. That means we have had a real changing of the guards. Instead of thinking about the, um, the first and second Continental Congress where you have John Adams, Samuel Adams, Thomas Jefferson, um, Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock, Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, right? These were the men really pushing for the independence movement. Now, many of these men are older. They're no longer playing as active a role in politics. And instead you have a newer generation, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison. These are men who came up during the revolution um, the revolution is kind of their formative years as opposed to British tyranny. But Ben Franklin's still around and he shows up and the fact that he is there adds legitimacy to this convention. It's not just a bunch of randos getting together and being like, we're going to overthrow the government, right? Ben Franklin's there. So who were these 55 delegates? Well, they are all wealthy white men. They all own property. They are lawyers, merchants. Almost all of them had experienced drafting constitutions, meaning that they had participated in creating their state constitution. Most of them were college educated, Princeton, Harvard, Yale. Most of them were relatively young and yet they were wealthier than your average American. And yet, these men, the ones who show up here, think there's a problem, right? If you think the Articles of Confederation are great, men like Samuel Adams, you're not gonna show up to a convention to change it, right? So the people who opt into this are nationalists, meaning they want a stronger central government. They want to preserve a republic, right? Meaning you vote for your representative. Um, they want to preserve property and stop anarchy. So like I said, a lot of the firebrands stayed home. You um, don't have Samuel Adams, um, Patrick Henry, John Hancock, John Dickinson. Um, Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine are both in Europe at this time, so they can't participate. Benjamin Franklin is there, John Adams is there, Alexander Hamilton, and then James Madison. As one of my old colleagues used to refer to him as little Jimmy, James Madison's 5'2", he's like 85 pounds, constantly sick, gonna play a huge role. Neoconservatives, um, historians look at this and say like, look, this is a good thing. It's a time to change leaders, right? Um, these new men, Hamilton, Madison, have a new understanding. They have a real um, future-focused understanding of what America could be as opposed to 
um, these older leaders who were trying to preserve the independence of the colonies themselves, right? Went back in the salutary neglect days. So they want to place limits on democracy. What that sounds bad, but rather than having everyone vote on everything, which is sometimes good and sometimes bad, right? Um, it's easy to be like, democracy is great all the time, but then you never have the minority opinion represented, right? Think about um, Jim Crow um, Southern states. More white people lived in those Southern states. And if it was direct democracy always, right? If, if, if it was always just majority will, then African-Americans would never have gotten their rights because the majority will was one that favored oppression of a racial minority. So majority wills, not always great. And Hamilton and Madison want to limit it. All right. So almost instantly they're there. Um, Washington opens up the conference. <clears throat> Madison um, raises his hand. He's like, you know, Mr. Mr. President, I would like to make a motion. Mr. Madison, you have the floor. I move that we get rid of the Articles of Confederation and form a new constitution. Hamilton jumps up, seconded. The motion has been moved. It's been seconded. We're now on to debate. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? What? We're, we're meeting here to talk about amending the Articles of Confederation. And all of a sudden, Madison and Hamilton have hijacked the conference. Suddenly, we are no longer talking about amending the Articles of Confederation. They have decided to get rid of it and form a new constitution. It is surprising. It is frustrating, right? Um, <laughs> is this a coup? Maybe. I mean, <laughs> we never have the unanimous vote of the states necessary to repeal the um, articles. Um, if it's a coup, it's a um, it's a very neat one. Um, so instantly, they have reframed the conversation. These two young men have reframed the conversation to be about what is this new form of government. We want a stronger economy. We want to protect private property. We want checks and balances, um, a bicameral legislature, um, an executive branch. They're going to start to incorporate the ideas of de Baron de Montesquieu, another enlightenment thinker, and they want a written constitution. You have to remember Americans in the 1780s still feared a big government. They are still worried about a powerful federal government stripping away their power. And almost instantly, we have tension between big states and small states. So big states, and by big, don't think geography so much as population. Big states like Virginia really like the idea of a bicameral legislature with representatives based off population. So James Madison and Edmund Randolph create the Virginia plan. The Virginia plan has essentially 
three branches, separation of power, checks and balances, and a bicameral Congress. This Congress would have the power to tax, not the executive, and both branches of Congress would be based off population. Therefore, states with more people would have more power, right? Um, side note, I think it's important to understand that while you will have, you know, Edmund Randolph, Roger Sherman, Hamilton even, you have to understand that James Madison is manufacturing the constitution from the background. He is playing puppeteer. He's talking to all the right people. He's staying up way too late writing. He has read all the things. It is, the constitution is the brainchild of James Madison more than any other American. Um, okay, so Madison and Randolph create the Virginia plan in which Congress is based off population. Big states like Virginia and New York and Pennsylvania love it. Smaller states, though, worry, you know, if they, if representation is exclusively based off population, then states like New Jersey or Rhode Island will never have equal representation, right? Will never have the power. They will always be outvoted. So decisions that favor big states will always be the decisions that are put into law. So the New Jersey plan is kind of more like the Articles of Confederation, where you have a single unicameral Congress, so one house, and every state has one vote. That means Rhode Island is equal to Virginia. Now, let's think about that a little bit. In that version, your average voter in Rhode Island actually has more power in Congress than your average voter in Virginia. Like if you were gonna take that one vote and divide it by the population of the state, right? The per person in Rhode Island has more sort of voting power in Congress than in Virginia. So now what? Well, Roger Sherman, AKA James Madison working through Roger Sherman because Madison didn't want to look like he was doing everything. Roger Sherman orchestrates the great compromise sometimes called the Connecticut compromise. And in this plan, Congress and the Congress that we know comes into being, we have a bicameral legislature, one house, the house of representative, representatives will be based upon the Virginia plan. That is why representation in the House of Representatives is uh, based off population. Every state is guaranteed one representative at least, but California has like 50 something representatives and North Dakota has one. So it makes sense. California has a lot more people, a lot more economic power. And so the California delegation is a lot larger and more influential in the House of Representatives than the Rhode Island delegation of one guy. However, the Senate is based off the New Jersey plan where each state is represented equally. The Senate has two senators per state. 
So North Dakota, which has like five people in California, which has, you know, 50 million are equal in power, right? If you were going to divide North Dakota's voting power by their population, by their five people, each of those individuals has a lot more influence over their senator than the 50 million in California. Side note, I'm making these numbers up for hyperbole. So small states are overrepresented in the Senate. However, small states have significantly less power in the House. And since laws must go through both, it's a compromise, right? It's a way to satisfy the desires of the large and small states. The large states feel like, all right, this is fair, right? We have more power. We have more people. We should have more influence. But small states don't feel like they'll always be ignored. After we solve this issue of Congress, all the other issues are solved quickly. The most infamous other compromise is known as the three-fifths compromise. The big question is what do we do about slavery? Ultimately, ultimately they kind of kick the can of slavery down the road, right? Um, the question they have to address immediately is, should slaves be counted? Um, if slaves were counted, then slave states would have more representatives in the house than states that had abolished slavery. So instead they decide, uh, slaves count a little bit. Slaves count as three fifths of a person, right? So you get to count slaves, but it's not like slaves are one-to-one. And as a compromise to the non-slave states, the, they decide that the um, international slave trade can be ended after 1808, right? So give us another 20 years of the slave trade. And then after that, if you guys wanna cancel it, you can. We know that slavery is gonna just be the underlying issue. There's also the big problem of commerce. Right? The South is, is afraid that export taxes will be placed on their good. They decide that Congress can regulate interstate and foreign trade and place tariffs on foreign goods, but no export taxes. What does that mean? It means if California, or sorry, if South Carolina is sending, selling rice to Jamaica, the federal government is not going to place a tax on the rice leaving South Carolina, but they can place a tax on the tobacco or sugar coming from Jamaica into South Carolina. Okay, so um, uh, if you're looking at this visually, you're gonna see a visual representation of the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan and the Great Compromise. Let's talk about the ratification debate because this is actually where rubber hits the road, right? They're able to come up with a plan pretty easily, mostly because Madison goes in with a plan ready to go. Um, also, one of the things, uh, part of this ratification debate as they start to debate like, okay, should we agree to this? Should we not? Um, the convention decides look, we're not gonna publish anything about this. We want men to be able to speak freely about their opinions um, without being um, 
implicated back home, right? Um, either economically or their, their political careers. Everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. We got to keep the proceedings of this secret. No one can know. And James Madison is like 100%. No one can know. But he's secretly taking notes the entire time. Um, anyways, we have the Constitution written, um, passed by the Constitutional Convention, and then the Constitution must go to each of the 13 states. And in the 13 states, you will have ratification conventions where every state will form a special ratification convention, not the state legislature, and in which representatives voted upon by the state will meet together, talk about the constitution and decide whether or not the state will accept the new constitution. They decide that only nine states will be necessary to make this constitution the new law of the land. So they're very specifically not allowing for just the state legislature, you know, the Virginia House of Burgesses, the Massachusetts General Court, right? They don't want just the state legislature deciding on this, in part because they think the state legislature will vote it down. Under the Articles of Confederation, the state legislatures are incredibly powerful. So instead, popular, popularly elected conventions would debate and vote on the Constitution. Well, of course, instantly, the anti-fed two groups appear in American politics. You have the anti-federalists. This is the old guard, John Hancock, Samuel Adams, Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson. These men vehemently oppose the constitution. They are scared that the states will be swallowed up by a stronger government. They fear an oppressive government. They, don't, they fear having a standing army, another parliament, they are not super organized. Um, but they are found in the state legislature. So a lot of legislatures will, you know, resign their job just so then they can get into these ratification conventions. So the Federalists, however, support, support the Constitution. Think Alexander Hamilton. James Madison, John Jay. These are like the iconic Federalists. Now, pause, place a little asterisk in your notes. These are not political parties at this time. A political party will emerge out of these groups and one of the political parties will become known as the Federalists. But at this time, these are not political parties as we know them today. These are two groups that either support or oppose the constitution. Now this gets confusing because there is a political party called the Federalists that have the same people as the supporters of the constitution. And then you'll have another group called the Democratic Republicans who will have the same people that were anti-Federalists, blah, blah, blah. All right, the Federalists. The Federalists tended to be more cultured um, they tended to be more urban, um, more educated. Washington was a Federalist. So you have Washington and Madison representing 
Virginia, trying to influence Virginia. Then you have Alexander Hamilton from New York. The argument over the constitution takes place in the press using pen names. So you have very famous documents known as the Federalist Papers. These are primary sources you should really know. Um, at the very least, you should be very familiar with Federalist 10, written by Madison. The most contested states, meaning the states where the ratification vote was up for grabs, um, was Massachusetts, New York, and Virginia. There was close votes in all of these. So Hamilton's in New York, Madison in Washington and Virginia. And they write these Federalist Papers, not Washington, Washington's no writer. Um, if you know the musical Hamilton, you'll know that Alexander Hamilton writes the majority of the Federalist Papers. However, the most influential ones, the most important ones are written by Madison. And Federalist 10 is the one to know in which Madison is essentially explaining his idea. He's saying that, look, you're worried that the federal government will be too powerful, that it'll just make decisions and it will take the power away from the states. Instead, he says, by no means. In fact, I expect that government will be highly ineffective. You might think of our current Congress and be like, yeah, yeah, they don't get anything done. He says, look, Everyone is gonna be looking out for their own interests, right? Um, states that are landlocked will um, have interests. States that are on the coast will have interests, big states versus small states. So, and because representatives in the house will be coming in every two years, right? Everyone's gonna be so focused on themselves and their competing interests the only thing that they are going to actually agree on are going to be the most, most important things, right? Everything little is going to be too divisive. The fact that our government is slow, it's cumbersome, that Congress seems ineffective is not necessarily a design flaw, according to Madison. He would say, this is a feature. This is the point, right? You don't want the government to work too efficiently because then only one will is being represented. By having them argue and be so self-interested, actually, they're going to act as a check on each other. Right? What's the incentive for one state to support another's if it would only benefit the second state? So... Madison wants to have wants to have it unanimous, right? Um, he wants to get the Anti-Federalists on board. So he goes around and he sits down with them and just has talk conversations, being like, look, tell me what you want. Tell me what you want. Tell me what your worries are. And I will see if we can resolve those. But, but here's the deal. I hear what you're saying. I hear your concerns, but this is a work in progress, right? The articles were almost impossible to amend. The constitution's easier to amend. So do me a favor. I promise I will write 
a bunch of amendments that we will vote on instantly. But first, ratify the document as is, and then we can amend it. He essentially promises them the Bill of Rights. There's a great video from Crash Course Government, US government on constitutional compromises. I do recommend you watch it. But ultimately, Madison is successful, right? We have the US Constitution as we know it today. And in response to Madison's concerns, we have the emergence of the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights are the first 10 amendments to the US Constitution. Anti-Federalists say that the Bill of Rights is necessary to limit the power of the government. Federalists say it's unnecessary because Congress will be elected by the people and the people don't need to be protected against themselves. Also, you should assume that all rights are protected, right? Why do we need to add amendments saying that freedom of speech is protected or freedom of the press, right? You should assume that your rights are protected unless stated otherwise. If you make a list of protected rights, then people might think that if it's not on the list, then it isn't protected. Um, it's a close vote. Only one fourth of males end up voting. Um, and ultimately a minority of conservatives engineered a peaceful revolution against the Articles of Confederation. In effect, 11 states seceded from the Confederation. Significantly, both groups favored a Republican form of government, and this begins the Federalist era. All right, um, I just wanna reflect a little bit on um, Federalist 10 again. Um, Federalist 10 written by Madison, federal government will be too, po uh, too powerful at Madison. Actually, they will be too, um, too ineffective, y'all, too many cliques and factions. Tyranny of the majority is what we have to worry about more than um, a federal government being too powerful. And then the other significant Federalist paper is known as Federalist 51, which is um, responding to the anti-Federalist concern that the executive will be essentially a king, that a federal judiciary, the courts will be dictatorial. Madison argues for a separation of powers. He argues that a bicameral legislature will act as a check, right? Because there are two houses of Congress, they will have to agree on laws to pass it. Therefore, few laws will be passed. Therefore, the president will be weakened because he's not going to have that many laws to enforce. Also, the president is not a hereditary position, right? When the president dies, his son does not become the new president. He also argues an independent judiciary will act as a check on both Congress and the presidency. It will protect the minority from federal encroachment. Right, Madison is quoted as saying, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. And the interest of man must be connected with the constitutional right of the place. Federalism is a 
represents the compound Republic of America. Individual states are actually stronger within the union, right? If every state is in competition with each other, then they are weakened on the international stage. A stronger federal government will be needed to protect people from two powerful states. We're going to see that as well. How many times do we see the federal government intervening to protect minority groups from the actions of states? All right. So Madison was worried about tyranny of the majority. Do you think as a country, we need to be more worried about tyranny of the majority or tyranny of the minority? Why? This is a really interesting question because you might, your instinct might be, well, the majority will should be what rules that tyranny of the minority is a big problem. On the other hand, we can think of lots of incidents in history where the majority was in the wrong, where sure, most people agreed with this position on human rights or medicine or whatever the common knowledge was, and they were wrong, right? Slavery is a great example of that. At this time, most Americans don't view slavery as a problem, right? Abolitionists are few and far between. Well, that's, that's the majority. Do we say that the majority is always right? Or do we want that abolitionist voice to be protected and to um, be active? A good place to think about this is in our presidential elections. So the Electoral College, which we'll talk about more next time when we talk about the Constitution, has gotten a lot of criticism lately. And in part because we have seen in several election cycles now that one candidate will receive more votes but the other candidate will receive more electoral votes. So what does that mean? Well, if you just count up all the votes in the country, candidate A gets 55%. But in the states, the electoral votes go are based off the state itself. So if let's see, um, North Dakota, which has five people goes for candidate B, well, then their electoral votes go towards candidate B. And California, sure, might have more electoral votes, but in the end, it's the electoral votes, not the popular votes. Now, people are like, yeah, and that's wrong, right? What most Americans want should be who the president is. But I would offer this consideration. Think about where most Americans live. They live in cities on coastlines. If you are not living in New York or LA or Houston or Miami, right? If you're not living in one of these major cities, what you want will never really be represented. If it's just popular vote wins every time, it's something silly, like 17 counties in the United States would decide the presidential election every time. Well, that doesn't seem very fair that the entire country's leadership will be decided by 17 counties just because a lot of people happen to live in those 17 counties. 
And the needs and desires and problems that cities like LA, New York, and Houston face are very different than the needs and desires of people living in Kansas or Utah or Indiana. And do we say, well, because you live somewhere more rural, because you don't live in a big city, you're, what you want doesn't matter because I happen to live in a big city and what I want matters more. Well, that doesn't seem very fair either. It's a hard thing to think about. It's a hard thing to reconcile as well. One thing I would also wonder, um, you, when we talk about the constitution, you're gonna see that primary elections are not part of the constitution. This is something created by political parties within states, right? Um, a state can get rid of their primary election if they want. Um, because of primary elections, you have a few people, the fact of the matter is few people vote in a primary election. So the most dedicated members of each political party tends to show up for the primary. That means to win the primary, you have to appeal to the most extreme and radical of your political party, whether that's the Democrats or the Republicans. That means in the general election, you don't have a variety of candidates who represent a variety of sort of views, right? Some might be moderate, some might be center-right or center-left. Instead, you have a election between the most radical Democrat who could get elected and the most radical Republican. So in that sense, minority populations are sort of setting the stage, limiting the choices of the popular uh, vote. Just something to think about. All right, all the concerns of the Anti-Federalists has basically happened. The federal government is super powerful. The power of the states has reduced. The power of the executive has increased. All of these concerns have come to pass. And yet, do we think this is a good thing or a bad thing? I would make the argument that most Americans now would say, yeah, but, but this is ultimately a good thing, right? It's ultimately a good thing that the federal government can intervene in Brown v. Board of Education to end segregation. It's ultimately a good thing that the federal government can intervene and take care of problems like border security or um, natural disaster relief, that it handles problems states don't want to handle. All right, there is a great video on Federalist 51. If you want to watch it, you can find it on the YouTube page. But I would like you to explain the differing ideological positions on the structure and the function of the federal government, aka, what did the Federalists think? What did the Anti-Federalists think? And how did this constitution come into being? Next time we'll go through the constitution itself. Please consider leaving a rating and review if you found this helpful. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.